Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to KSL Plus, KSL TV's digital-only news show. I'm Matt Rascone, and today we're talking about herd immunity and what comes next with COVID. With more and more people getting vaccinated, including kids, we're looking to the future. And we hear a lot about herd immunity. But what is it? Is it possible? Will it even work? Especially since we don't have immunity to other coronaviruses. I spoke to an expert at the University of Utah. Here's our conversation. I'm Lindsay Keegan, and I'm a research assistant professor in the Division of Epidemiology up at the University of Utah. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. Um, this this term, this idea of herd immunity, has kind of been echoed around, you know, from the beginning, especially when we started seeing the rollout of the vaccine. Can you talk about what, what we're talking about when we say herd immunity? Yeah. So herd immunity occurs to uh, refers to the specific threshold that you cross where um, when somebody is infected with a virus or um, something else that spreads person to person. Um, there are enough people that they come into contact with who are no longer immune to the disease so that they they can no longer replace themselves. So essentially, if I have COVID, everybody that I contact and could potentially spread COVID to can't get COVID. And so I can't spread the disease anymore. So it's a, it's a very simple concept to to understand, which is why I think people like to talk about it so much. Um, but it is in, um, in practice, it's a lot more complicated. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of what we want to get into because I think that, uh, I think there was this, uh, sort of narrative that that's what we had to get to. That was the goal. Otherwise we're stuck in this pandemic, you know, forever. Um, where, where did, where does that go sideways? And and can you, maybe clarify some things for us. Yeah. So the first point is that um, either way, we probably won't be stuck in a pandemic forever, but we probably will be stuck with COVID forever. So uh, it probably will continue to spread in small numbers or in little outbreaks, um, but not in the same sort of global devastating outbreak that we've seen over the last, what, 15 months at this point. Um, So, and the other side of it is that herd immunity is sort of a journey rather than a destination, right? You have this threshold and for COVID, it's somewhere between maybe 60 and 80% of the population needs to be immune, but 
the population isn't fixed. People are being born every day. People who have immunity are dying. Um, and so, you know, you have this shifting demographics. You also have people losing immunity, either because the vaccine immunity wanes or because their natural immunity wanes. You have people getting COVID and the, or getting vaccinated and then they become immune. So we like to, you know, we've sort of been talking about herd immunity as if it's a static picture. And once you hit this threshold, you're done. Um, but in reality, you know, human population dynamics are just much more complicated than that. We've been talking a lot about this vaccine rollout slowing down recently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a shift in the state moving away from mass vaccine clinics to more uh, physicians giving the vaccine like you would see, you know, with the flu and things like that. Um, and so it doesn't seem like it's really uh, attainable that, you know, that herd immunity, because we've seen the numbers like 70, 80, 90 percent, you know, that would need to get the vaccine. Uh, but you're saying that that's that's OK. Like well, we so, still... Yeah, like I said, herd immunity is not a, a destination. And I will sort of uh, contradict what you just said. That's OK. I mean, it's not really OK. I, ideally, we would get everybody in the world fully vaccinated and then we would we could be done with COVID, right? We've eliminated smallpox by doing that. Uh, we could eliminate other infectious diseases, but it's just, it's a lot more complicated. And so the part that makes it better, I won't say okay, but the part that makes it better is that along this journey, it's not a light switch where before you hit herd immunity, COVID spreading, and after you hit herd immunity, it's off for good. Think of it more like a dimmer, where the more people in the population who are immune, the less well COVID can spread, right? If it requires that you know 90% of the people that I contact are immune to COVID in order for me to not spread it at all, but 60% of the people I contact, but only 60% of the people I contact are immune, well then that's still a reduction in the number compared to if 0% of those people were immune, right? So as we approach herd immunity, COVID spreads or any disease um, spreads less and less well. And so early in the pandemic, when everybody in the world essentially was able to get COVID, it spread a lot faster. And now as we get to, I think I saw an article that 50% of Americans, American adults were vaccinated. So that's a 50% reduction in the number of people who can get COVID just through the vaccine. And then there's another group of people who are immune to COVID because they've gotten COVID. And so those people count, right? We can't, we don't just count the people who, who got vaccinated. We count both. Yeah. Yeah. That helps. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, kind of the, the tiered system that we did it in where those who are most vulnerable, those who are had you know, greatest risk of exposure and greatest risk to their health. If they're vaccinated, if they're good, you know, then we kind of are able to continue on, um, you know. Yeah, it brings the death rate down from, you know, we we see large number of people dying on a day-to-day basis to maybe once we have all the vulnerable people vaccinated or immune, then, um, you know, our ICUs aren't overflowing and our hospital beds aren't overflowing and people aren't dying from COVID, um, and then it becomes a more manageable outbreak or disease rather than this, you know, devastating global pandemic. Right. So what does that look like for, you know, everyday Utahns? I mean, uh, uh, we are, let's see, we're finishing up a school year. We have fall, you know, winter coming up. 
what does that look like? Um, assuming that we're kind of, we kind of continue on this slow rollout where, you know, people start getting the, the or continue to get the vaccine here and there, uh, but not necessarily, you know, this, this uh, 90%. Yeah. I mean, I think until kids can get vaccinated, um, we're going to see interruptions to daily life. Um, you know, without right now, kids 12 and older can get vaccinated, but that still leaves a big chunk of the population. Um, and you do still worry there have been a number of breakthrough infections, particularly in the elderly. So you do worry a little bit if kids can't get vaccinated. Well, then if grandma is the caregiver, we're, we need to be a little bit concerned there. Um, but once you know, once the whole population is eligible to get vaccinated and we're able to move through that, um, I think long term, it'll look something like measles, right? You don't expect to have the vaccine evenly distributed in the population. So you may see pockets of the population that hit 90 or even 100% of people are vaccinated. Um, and then you may see pockets with very low vaccine update, uptake, just like measles. And so, you know, you're, you're going to see these outbreaks. Um, and so there'll be these little pockets of explosive COVID outbreaks like you see with measles and, you know, the Disneyland outbreaks. Um, and then it'll fizzle out and then you'll see another introduction. But we're able to maybe contain it a little better. I mean, I assume like things like, you know, that we've learned about this last year, or at least the general public uh, contact tracing and, and things like that, um, you'd be able to kind of contain it a, l- a little more efficiently. Yeah, we hope so. We'd hope we'd be able to, you know, maybe give booster doses to people who are around that outbreak or, um, yeah, contact tracing. Maybe people, if they've been a known exposure, will wear their mask for a little bit of time um, to prevent any sort of transmission, those types of things. We will have, you know, sort of small pockets and we'll be able to contain those pockets rather than having this big global outbreak. Right where businesses are shutting down, where schools are closing because of this many mm-hmm. cases at the school. Um, so I that- do think one slightly important asterisk on that is that the global vaccine distribution has not been, you know, even, right? The U.S. has been much faster to vaccinate for a number of reasons than a bunch of other countries. And so until we really see global vaccine uptake, reach the levels that we see in the U.S., we're going to continue to see situations like what's happening in India, where you have these massive devastating outbreaks because there just isn't access to vaccine the same way that there is here in the U.S. So that may not have implications for Utahns on their day-to-day life, um, but it is still something that it's going to be a long time before this is fully fully over. Do we know? I mean... Are we still in a pandemic right now? And when can we say that we're not? Um, I believe the definition of a pandemic, and I didn't look this up, so I'm going off the top of my head, is um, widespread global spread. And I think that we're still in pretty high levels of spread globally. I think we may be um, coming out the other end of it, particularly here in the US. But I mean, looking at India, it was only a month ago where they were seeing what, 200,000 new cases per day or something to that extent. And so I think we sort of are living in a nice rosy bubble where, you know, the pandemic's over and we can go back on airplanes and we can do this and things are opening up and the mask mandate's being lifted. 
Um, but I think the situation is very different in other parts of the world. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of things like um, masks, social distancing, you know, the uh, I mean, hopefully, you know, things like hand washing will stick around. Um, but <laughs> what about uh, what about masks? What about distancing? And, you know, I'm thinking of like events industry and, and the gatherings and the groups and the weddings and things like that. Um, do we do we assume that that will that will be OK as long as, you know, there aren't those small outbreaks that we were talking about? The Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccines are 90% effective against asymptomatic disease and 95% effective against symptomatic disease. Uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are lower, um, but that does mean that there's a very high sort of success, right? So the probability of getting COVID, if you're exposed to it, has has decreased significantly for people who are vaccinated. Um, and so based on the CDC recommendations, um, sort of people no longer need to wear masks if you're vaccinated around other vaccinated people. If you're unvaccinated, it's still recommended that you wear a mask. Um, I'm not sure how people are supposed to tell the difference between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated uh, other than trusting them. So I've kept my mask on um, when I'm in an enclosed space. So like at Trader Joe's or something like that, I continue to wear my mask um, or uh, you know, if I was to take public transit, I would continue to wear my mask, but I'm not wearing it outdoors anymore. Yeah. Is there, is there anything else that uh, you think would be important to put out there as we're talking about sort of the, the future of the virus and how we interact with it and the impact it has on our daily life? Um, I mean, can we expect eventually that it's, that it's going to be something like the flu, you know, where we get, you know, we'll, we'll get a vaccine, you know, um, that will be available to us. Um, you know, we might miss a day or two of school or work or whatever, but you know, things will, will be good. I'm hopeful that that is what will happen with it. Um, I, uh, yeah, there's, there's still very little research on sort of the transition from epidemic to endemic disease, endemic meaning sort of the diseases that are here all, all the time spreading like flu and epidemic more like, you know, pandemic, new emerging virus. Um, one of uh, the students who works with me and Dr. Fred Adler in the math department um, just built a model looking at this um, and recently published it in the journal Vaccines. Um, but there's still really preliminary research on on what's going to happen and how often we'll need to get booster doses for the vaccine and sort of what will happen um, with the long-term trends. But I'm very hopeful right now. Um, vaccines seem to be going in a great direction. 50% of, of adults are in the U.S. are vaccinated. I would love to see that number go up. I'm very excited. I know my friends who have young kids are very excited to get their kids vaccinated so that they can, you know, feel safe to get on an airplane again, for example, with their whole family. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm the way that the vaccines have been rolled out here in the U.S. make me very hopeful. The, my only concern is sort of globally how that looks, um, you know, especially with lower middle income countries. You know, when are they going to get the vaccines that they need so that we don't they don't have major outbreaks like India, because as long as there are major outbreaks around the world, there's the potential for importation into the U.S. 
Right. Okay. All right, Dr. Keegan, thanks so much for, uh, for jumping on with us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. What about 10 years from now? What does the virus look like then? My colleague Jed Bull talked to Dr. Fred Adler, a professor of mathematics and biological sciences at the University of Utah, about a mathematical model that may have some answers. So most people were focused on looking at sort of the short-term dynamics, which are really important. And other people were thinking about the evolution of the virus itself due to mutations. But I've been thinking a lot about how viruses interact with each other and what's the role of of the immune system in controlling the long-term dynamics. So it it was that and then a story, this was probably a year ago, that my wife read to me. She's like, hey, there's this thing about kids might give adults less severe cases because they don't carry as much virus. And that was actually the trigger. I'm like, wow, that would change everything because suddenly if kids get mild cases and if they give their parents mild cases suddenly we have a new a totally new disease so that was actually the trigger of the idea and everything i was modeling and then and then how was it that um how is it that mathematical models can help us understand the answers to some of those questions mathematical models are a way to understand the implications of our assumptions Right, and so that's all we do as scientists, right? So we try to figure stuff out. And we're like, it seems to work like this. What does that mean? And mathematical models are really the only way we have to see what it means as we project into the future. So, what ma- what mathematical models did you construct in order to answer this critical question about the coronavirus? All of the models I do are really basically counting. They're not that different, right? So what all the the models we hear about in the news are counting how many people are sick and how many people got better. And so we realized that if we count people in more categories, how many people got a severe disease, how many people got a mild disease, how many people transmit from mild diseases to mild diseases, that's all we do. We just count stuff. But by understanding the rules of counting, we can project into the future and predict what's going to happen. And what did you discover with these with these models on on um, on how the coronavirus is going to look uh, within the next decade? I mean, we discovered what we always do, which is we don't really know, of course. But what we're trying to do is lay out the possibilities, scenarios. So, well, yeah, what we discovered was a little surprising to me, actually, is we included three things that might make it become less mild. Two I just mentioned. One is kids get mild cases. The second is there's some evidence that mild cases produce mild cases because you don't produce as many viruses. And the third is the role of partial immunity, right? So if you've had a coronavirus before, we've all had the seasonal coronaviruses. You don't get very sick because your body has seen it before. You might get it, but it's sort of a partial half immune situation. So we found is if we include all three of those things together, then we end up at this thing we call JASC, just another seasonal coronavirus. And that if all those things work, we might, instead of having the four seasonal coronaviruses that we have now, we have five. But if they don't all work, which I, I think is probably going to be closer to the case, we're going to have something in between. 
And what we're going to learn over the next years, particularly, you know, depending on how the vaccines roll out, what we'll learn is where do we lie in that continuum? It's definitely going to be not as bad as it is now. And I'm hoping that it ends up all the way at the other end. It's just another cold, but it's going to be somewhere in between. And the models help us know what we need to measure and study to figure that out in advance. What is it about our immune system that will, that will dictate how this plays out? It's it's a somewhat of a mystery. It's there's certain things for which we get lifelong immunity. Measles is the most famous example, and influenza to a certain extent also. Influenza we keep getting because it evolves quickly. And then there's other things like the common colds, the, like the seasonal coronaviruses, for which we don't get lifelong immunity. You get this sort of half immunity, so that your body's seen it before, but it doesn't have that super response that you get, say, to measles. And so, you know, it remains <clears throat> to be seen just how long that immunity lasts and how good that immunity is. But so Did does, you all, go ahead. I mean, the, the irony of this is that, you know, having perfect immunity and then losing it completely is probably worse than having partial immunity for a long time. Because if you lose it completely, then you're susceptible to getting super sick again. Whereas if you have partial immunity, yeah, you'll get sick, but we deal with colds. Did the results of your modeling, um, did this surprise you? Um, mix. I mean, as I said, I was a little surprised how hard it was to get it to work, right? We had to not, not make extreme assumptions, but to include all of the components to get this thing to act like just another seasonal coronavirus or like a common cold. But... Yeah, it didn't, you know, it wasn't a shock. I wasn't like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then also, how could um, how could your discoveries be helpful in terms of uh, in terms of public policy or or how can we synthesize this information and, and, and use it helpfully? My, my hope is that as we learn more about immunity in particular, that we'll be able to include this as part of our vaccination planning. That is to say, we're never going to make this thing go extinct. It's not going to be like, like uh, smallpox or polio. It's going to be around forever. But if it's going to be around forever like a cold, then we should use public policy, vaccination, treatment, and maybe non-pharmaceutical interventions to make sure it stays where we want it to be, which is just another cold. So I think that's the main thing is we understand this process, then we can use the tools we have available to get us to where we want to be. Does, does your modeling suggest um, how it became just another cold rather than uh, the menacing coronavirus that, that we've been dealing with the last year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's based on those three assumptions. I mean, there, there's you know sort of one mystery, which others know more about than I do, which is why don't kids get that sick? And there's a lot of different theories about that. But, it, you know, that's true of many diseases. You know, immune systems in little kids are different from those in adults. You know, they're better at everything pretty much. Um, and so I think if we understood that better, you know, and understood immunity in general better, then we would you know, be able to predict the future better. Um, so, you know, we don't know the history of most viruses, right? They pop up at some point. They all look the same in terms of symptoms. It's like, then they got colds. 
So we don't know when these things popped up. So we don't know how many of the seasonal coronaviruses started out as actually much more virulent pandemics and how many just somehow popped in from camels or pangolins or something. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I always like to ask scientists this. What's the question that I that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Oh, did pretty well or maybe i just answered the questions i wanted to, <laughs> to ask um i mean the one thing that we mention in the article which is really just speculation is about one of the seasonal coronaviruses pretty clearly did emerge in the 1880s and there was a worldwide pandemic at that time we don't know what it was it could have been flu it could have been this we'll probably never know Right? So there's sort of circumstantial evidence out there that one of the four existing <laughs> coronaviruses might have already gone through this this pathway. And yeah, so maybe that's kind of the key question is a lot of what we do in biology is comparative biology. How does this compare with the other coronaviruses? It's way less severe than SARS. You know, SARS would never go down this road. That thing is super deadly. Um, but this one is right in between. Excellent. Dr. Adler, thanks so much for your time and your thoughts. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, that does it for us this week here on KSL Plus. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week.